0: The story just got to the point where one night I packed up our car and I drove to Goulburn. I thought I'm just going to drive until I work out what I'm going to do with myself. Of course, Janelle thought I was suicidal and she called the crisis assessment teams. And I turned around from Goulburn and came back. At that point, Janelle said, "Well, what do you really want to do with your life?" You know, she she understood that I was struggling with where life was going and what it all meant. And I prayed and just felt like the Lord telling me to learn to play the didgeridoo. Get out on the street and
1: start playing it. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, Mike Lane was going through somewhat of an existential crisis when the Lord led him to learn how to play the didgeridoo. This surprising change in his life has led to tremendous success. And he's played at music festivals all over the world Including the 2000 Olympics in Sydney We'll find out his story today And also hear some of the music of his band River Tribe Which combines the sounds of the didgeridoo With relaxing electronic ambient sounds Mike Lane is having a chat with Eric Scatterbo In our Melbourne studios Mike Lane, welcome to the program
2: Hey Eric, good to be here Glad to have you with us Let's listen to some of that relaxing music the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, by Mike Lane and your group called River Tribe. That's right, yeah. So we're going to get back to this unique music that you feel the Lord has kind of led you to this type of music, and it's very relaxing as we heard. But first, we're going to find out the beginning of the Mike Lane story. Let's find out about your background. Where were you born and raised?
0: Born and raised in Melbourne, Australia, Uh, born to a, a family in Mount Waverley. My dad was an Anglican minister. Um, so, we grew up in the Anglican church up until sort of my mid teens. Um, my dad was, apart from the fact that he was a minister, he was actually an atheist. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> he was a minister, but he was an
2: atheist? Yeah. How did that happen?
0: Well, I, I think back in the 60s when he studied, you know, it was theology was more of just a field of study. Um, so, what are you going to study? I'll study accounting or I'll study law or, I'll, or maybe I'll study theology. And, so, it didn't uh, matter whether you believed or not? No. Wow. Not I've all. heard
2: of liberal churches that don't always believe uh, the biblical account of things and yeah. kind of rationalize and spiritualize things, but actually yeah. being an atheist. So, it was just knowledge, in other words.
0: Yes, yeah. He was driven by, or still is, uh, driven by the social agenda. There was The, the social war. gospel? Well, yeah, Jesus as a social activist, as a, as a socialist activist, kind of a, a Che Guevara of sorts, you know, who would come in and bring socialist utopia to the planet and end all wars. Wow. So dad was active, very active in Vietnam war protests, for example, mm-hmm. and played guitar, sort of his playing guitar was sort of the genesis of music in our family, but he'd play a lot of Bob Dylan songs and Simon and Garfunkel type songs. And, well, I was going to ask how he
2: influenced you. So obviously, musically he did, but also did his atheism slash theology influence you as well?
0: Well, we went through the religious kind of process as I grew up. So I was confirmed in the Anglican Church. Um, If you don't know what that is, it's you meet with the bishop once a week for a couple of months and learn how to say the Lord's Prayer off the top of your head and so you get confirmed as a Christian, but you know I didn't really have any kind of active faith. I just learnt the scriptures and right answers to the questions. Now, at we the should confirmation ceremony.
2: We should say that there are Anglican churches that are very conservative and biblically oriented. Oh yes, yep. But this sure. particular one that you were at with your atheist father <laughs> obviously was
0: not. No, it wasn't okay yeah. no I've, I've particularly with touring with the band we played a lot of churches and uh, we found some very active very on fire Anglican congregations as well so no I'm not trying to paint the the Anglican Church with that sort of religious brush mm-hmm. and there's people who love that high Anglican tradition as well mm. so you were confirmed yes so technically that meant that you believed yeah but in your heart no, just, there was no kind of active faith there. Okay. I didn't even really make a connection. There wasn't the sense of being presented with the gospel and that need, that requiring a response. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you're baptized as an infant, you know, you're recognized as a Christian. You simply grow up as a Christian, mm-hmm. if you like, but that doesn't necessarily mean you've responded to the gospel message and repented yeah. of your sins and asked Christ to direct your life. So more of a cultural Christian, would you say? Yeah, yeah. Ethically? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Australia's, during that period, I guess, up until maybe the mid-'70s or so, was very much a Christian culture Mm -hmm. founded on Christian principles, and almost everybody went to church. It was cultural. So that's what
2: you were doing. The other influence that your father had in your life and in your whole family is music.
0: Yeah. All of the siblings grew up playing music my brother chris is still very active plays in a band called ochre they headline a lot of festivals around australia and around the world so he's a professional musician yes yep makes his living playing woodwinds and my sister has a band called sacred earth it's a new age focused um yoga meditation focused group Hmm. so we don't tend to agree on a Spiritual level But mm-hmm. that's where she's at mm-hmm. um, And they're probably one of the top selling Independent artists in this country In fact, both bands, Ioka and Sacred Earth Are both well known They'd be some of the top independent artists In, in this country So very
2: successful musically Your yeah. family has yeah. gone on to be And then when you were in school
0: You met somebody Yep Well, I met the Janelle Who's uh, now my wife of 32 years uh, she was an active Christian. We were 17 years old. Um, I was a red-blooded teenager. And, and we're talking a Bible-oriented, born-again That's right, yeah. active Christian. Yeah. 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 So she became a Christian through the ministry of Young Life. Mm-hmm. And uh, she invited me to Young Life camps and things like that. And through the message that they were communicating at camps and their weekly meetings and all that, I took the decision to become a christian i mean the biggest motivator was um janelle said um that she was going to remain chaste till she was married and if we wanted to remain boyfriend and girlfriend i needed to become a christian and observe the same values and so i guess there was a selfish motive in there but (laughs) (laughs) it didn't take long to sort of the gospel to take hold and you know i got got fired up
2: well i mean some people would have said hey forget it i've I'm out of here, but yep, obviously yep. you really liked Janelle. I
0: did. I did. Uh, I do, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is the correct still answer. still like her a lot.
2: <laughs> and you did look into it, and you, I'm assuming, sincerely put your faith into the Lord.
0: Yeah. Having an anal- analytical mind, you know, I tried to philosophize it out and reason it out, but in the end it was just the loving power of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. acting on my heart to motivate me to make that choice. Okay
2: Well let's at this point Kind of fast forward So you eventually get married Yes You have some children Yes Life is going okay But then in the late 90s You had a bit of a Personal crisis
0: Yes I did We had At that point We had four kids We got six kids all up mm-hmm. uh, Four grandkids But um, at that point We had four uh, We were living in Furniture Gully And I was Working as a carpenter That's my trade mm-hmm. Um just continuing this sort of continuing existential crisis of what 's the point of life mm. where am I going what 's it all mean? Kind of caught up with me and uh, led me into a slide into depression and kind of a nervous breakdown as it were i don 't know how to define it beyond that, but it was kind of a mental meltdown mm. and um how did it manifest itself? Were you able to go to work or yeah i was working I was working for a good friend at the time, but just Uh, working on my own, driving a vehicle, doing repairs on vehicles at auto dealerships. And it was just kind of a downward spiral mentally. It was difficult to get through every day. And just got to the point where one night I packed up our our car and I drove to Goulburn. (laughs) Just spontaneously? (laughs) Yeah. uh, I thought, I'm just going to drive until I work out what I'm going to do with myself. And, um, of course, Janelle thought I was suicidal and... Mm called the cat team the crisis assessment teams and the police were notified everything else I turned up I, I turned around from Goulburn and came back so I kind of went missing for two days and so sort of from that point began my recovery you know there was an intervention from the crisis assessment team they kind of um, assessed me and said look you're not in any imminent danger but you need to seek help in terms of depression and Get some counselling and this sort of thing. So I did that, and um, at that point, Janelle said, "Well, what do you really want to do with your life?" You know, she she understood that I was struggling with where life was going and what it all meant. And I prayed and just felt like the Lord telling me to learn to play the didgeridoo and get out on the street and start playing it.
2: Wow! Of all the things that <laughs> I've heard that help somebody get out of depression. Playing the didgeridoo is <laughs> probably not the most common one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> had you played the didgeridoo before? I mean, no, where did this come from? No,
0: I hadn't even played a wind instrument or anything before. So, really, I'm a bass guitarist by trade, and but I didn't. The problem at the time is I didn't own any didgeridoo, so I had to make them out of PVC, mm-hmm. um, which is a good process making your own instrument and then playing it, tuning it. That kind of stuff. I don't so. think it would go well if I tried that, but for you, <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly didn't go well at the start. I had to have a strong vision to learn circular breathing, but um, wow. I did that on the way to work. So every day I would catch the train to and from work. So I continued in that same job doing water repairs, but I'd go to my boss's house, pick up the vehicle, um, and I'd do that by catching the train. And uh, so I would walk to the station. So I'd play and practice my circular breathing, the didgeridoo, while I'm walking along. Got some very strange looks. And, yeah, uh, I was thinking about that. <laughs> I mean, I can barely do two things at once. You're
2: playing while walking.
0: Yeah. Did you ever bump into something? <laughs> Not really, but um, it's, it's, Quite difficult walking up a hill, exerting yourself and circular breathing at yeah, the same time. Yeah, but now this
2: circular breathing, yeah. is that like through the nose? And I mean, how does this work?
0: Um, you, yeah, you draw air in through your nose while continuing to push air out of your mouth. So it's initially a process of using your cheeks, puffed out cheeks to push the air out while you breathe in your nose. Um, so an exchange wow. happens of yeah. air. So it's constantly. So you constant just got to flow. practice to get this. Yeah. Yeah. But eventually you get to the point of what's called diaphragmatic breathing, uh-huh. where the exchange takes place in your lungs. So you don't actually need to push air out with your cheeks anymore. So um, you're
2: doing this walking with a PVC pipe. That's right. And then you get on the train. Play on the train. Play on the train. I, I'm just wondering what the people on the train
0: are <laughs> thinking about, about. Yeah, same. Get some very strange looks. Um, but Some people will really enjoy it, listening to it. Uh, and it was good because it, it – it kind of dropped that fear fear of man type guard huh. that I had up, you know.
2: But you like, felt the Lord led you to explore this instrument.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to the story. Today, Eric Scatterbo is chatting with Mike Lane from the musical group River Tribe. And as we just heard, at a low point in his life, he decided to drop everything and learn how to play the didgeridoo. Amazingly, that went on to be a tremendous success, and he's gone on to tour all over the world. We're going to find out about that and how he's now combining music and ministry when we return. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. We're back with more of Eric Scatterbo chatting with musician and didgeridoo player Mike Lane from the group called River Tribe. As we're hearing, they have a unique blend of electronic ambient sounds combined with the didgeridoo. Before the break, we heard how at a low point in Mike's life, he decided to drop everything and learn how to play the didgeridoo. Now we're going to hear what happened next in his life.
0: Decided to go out on the street and start playing. The problem with that is I didn't have any equipment. So I made a list, including I didn't have didgeridoos still, um, or genuine timber ones. So I made a list of everything I needed to go busking on the street. So I need battery amps and microphones and didgeridoos, and uh, I wanted some drums, so I need some African drums. So I made a list of everything I needed and um, just started praying for it. First thing was my brother gave me two didgeridoos. So I got started from there. Other stuff was given to me. I was able to sell some equipment and buy some other things that I needed. Put the kit together and then just started going out on the street. Uh, initially at Queen Victoria Market, amongst other places, St Andrew's Market outside of Melbourne. Um, within a few months, I'd applied for uh Melbourne Fringe Festival and we'd booked shows at Melbourne Town Hall. I was still solo, uh, although I had other people kind of jamming with me. I managed to put together a six-piece band and a 90-minute wow. show. Out of, um, we wrote some tracks and put some other stuff together and did these shows, and that's what kind of kicked us off as a band. So, what was your big break? Uh, we were playing on the street in 2000, uh, at Vic Market again. Just a couple of us on that day, myself and, uh, one of the original members, David Gleason. And, um, we were spotted by Jimmy Wong, this kind of cool Singaporean dude who ran Singapore River Festival. And he said to us, on the street, he just said, I'll pay you 5,000 American to come and play at my festival. And um, at that time... In Singapore? Yeah. So at that time, five grand US was 10 grand Australian. So um Wow. We were like, wow, this is awesome. So we told the other guys we were going, there's four of us at that time. And in the meantime, we got booked to play at the Sydney 2000 Olympics, mm-hmm. right in the Homebush Stadium precinct. We were booked by the Sydney Olympics Organising Committee. Plus, we signed up with More Than Gold, which are a Christian outreach organization that go to Olympics all globally. Mm-hmm. And so we did a bunch of gigs, street gigs, with them as well. So we kind of combined the two. We had these professional gigs that we were paid you know, good money for to play at the Olympics site. And then we're out on the street in different locations with a Christian outreach organization.
2: And that just kind of grew
0: from there, the exposure? Yeah. Well, at that time... we. There was an intro concert for the More Than Gold thing at the Homebush Stadium. So it was a Christian music-focused concert. We played at that. The headliner for that was Rebecca St. James. And so she was there. She's got seven brothers and sisters, and her parents were there. Her dad, Dave Smallbone, manages her. Mm-hmm. And um, so we met her and her family. Actually, we didn't meet Rebecca, but we met the family, and David approached us on the night and said I really like, he just heard a sound check he didn't hear oh, wow. his play like, it was a dreadful sound check too <laughs> he heard something that he that he liked and um, said I want to talk to you guys further and so later on that year we got an email from his A&R guy, Ainsley Grosser who's a Perth boy he's a um, big time Nashville producer these days mm. um, and said we want to offer you a deal record deal and Wow! They knew we were touring internationally by then, and um, he said, "Look, organise for you to come to Nashville and meet meet the crew and sign a contract." Wow!
2: And so, then from there, concerts all over the world.
0: Uh, our touring with EMI Records with uh, David Smallbone and Rebecca was mainly on mainland US. So we toured. At one point, we toured forty-eight states. Wow! Yeah, it was crazy. Um, we did fourteen thousand miles on that tour. Uh, in the in the smallbone family chevy van wow. and so and we did about three tours like that um with Rebecca and with Chris Tomlin, uh, a lot of other big artists, too numerous to name at this point, but yeah, we had a great time touring with them that that touring didn't really support us professionally, like we're living off c d sales mm-hmm. which weren't always great. When your merchandise tables out by the toilet <laughs> at a venue, <laughs> because the headlining artists get the prime positions. Oh, is that like. But okay. um, fortunately, they actually put us on before the concert time, official concert time start. So they would open the doors, and we'd start playing when the doors open. So you're kind so, of the introduction, yeah, yeah we're like kind of the warm-up <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. while people are coming and finding their seats. Yeah. So often when we were finished, you know, the auditorium only be one third full. Sometimes it was full, but. Most of the time, oh okay, you know, it was still filling up. But the uh-huh. great thing about that was there'd be a intermission, mm-hmm. and at that intermission, we'd meet a lot of people and oh, okay, sell a bunch of CDs, and that kept us going. Yeah, and that was our mo at festivals. You know, we did a lot of big street festivals, yeah. some of the biggest in the world. Like yeah, one we did in Montreal it was like a million people come to it. Now, so. going back to your personal crisis, yep, you felt the
2: Lord led you to play the Didgeridoo, mm-hmm. which you've told me before we started to record you no longer play <laughs> that instrument that's right. why do you think what was god's plan
0: in all this i just think god puts people in particular little niches where he wants his truth and love to go out you know so we're on the street in the marketplaces you know and i just felt that's that's where the gospel's at its most powerful is in the highways and byways markets where mm-hmm. people were doing food shopping or shopping yeah. for arts and crafts, that sort of thing. And we would surprise people with our sound, because we weren't just a busker with an out-of-tune guitar. We were, <laughs> you know, we had all this technology and yeah. had, had this amazing production going on on the street. Now, a lot of people, when they feel called to do
2: music ministry, mm-hmm. it's the music and the lyrics, you yeah. know, singing about the Lord, yeah. that ministers to people. Mm-hmm. Whereas it sounds like... You're ministering through music, but also it's about the people you meet, the interpersonal relationships. Is that correct? It was
0: all about the interactions with people. I think I kind of copped out of it for a a number of years by going, "Oh, well, we're pre-evangelism. You know, we get CDs into people's hands, and hopefully, and we pray over them, and hopefully that will bring healing and joy into their lives as they listen to them. And there'll be a gospel message in there somewhere." That was kind of my intention. But part of my intention was really to cop out from really speaking up, speaking the gospel directly into people. And it took me some years to just get over that fear of or embarrassment of the gospel itself, mm. you know, trying to fit in, try to be commercially yeah. viable. Which t- is always t- tempting to do yeah, 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 because yeah. then you get a bigger audience. Yeah. And but now, what are you like, saying? Now you're not like that? No, I'm far more direct. You know, um, we had a gap in the band from 2006 up to 2011 we had five years off it started as one year off and became five during that time i would started prayer walking mm-hmm. and i'd go up to two three hours a day through the dandenong rangers prayer walking and just learning how to communicate with the lord and i was sitting on this rock and i'd sit on this rock above the city and pray over the city and at one point i i'd been listening to roland baker a bit and i said lord why don't you send me to the people of Africa, you know, I could. I could be a great evangelist in Africa and these places, and the the reply came back really clearly. It was, how could I send you there when you haven't learned to love the people down there? And I was like, wow, that was like a slap in the face and um, a kind of a wake-up call. So I just started going, hanging out on the street. I had to learn to love those people, mm. and um, I, I really did. So we we would just sit on the street and pray. We wouldn't chase after people or or occasionally we did if we felt a strong leading to do it someone walked past um people would come to us and they'd just start telling us their story Hmm. and very broken very destroyed lives and we just started praying for people got onto the fact that you could lay hands on people and they'd get healed miraculously so we started giving that a try and saw some amazing things happen wow so it was a great time it was a real education time in terms of what God really wanted to do with my life in terms of the gospel and what power we had available to us. And does um, that tie in with the music? Well, I brought it back in in, in the sense that when we started playing again, um, Luke Hawkins came on board with me, and we're still a pair now. And we started doing uh, Mind, Body, Spirit Festival in Melbourne. It's a massive, Which is kind
2: of a New Age type Yeah, oh, yeah very much so, yeah. But because you have this instrumental music that's relaxing,
0: you're able to go in there as Christians. Yeah. And we'd done that festival in the past but never said anything, just played the music, sold CDs, said hi to people, that sort of thing, so kind of played it incognito. When we went back in at that point, um, the music was simply a vehicle to create an environment where I could begin to call out words of knowledge over people in the audience. I'd send someone out with a microphone, Or I'd walk around with a microphone myself while the music was playing, and um, so I'd say, "Okay, I'm hearing someone's got a shoulder injury in their right shoulder. Who's that? Put up your hand." And um, so someone during a music concert during our performance, which is where the ambient music was great. We could just put on this ambient stuff and leave the stage because the track would go for ten minutes on the back (laughs) on the backing track, and you might have a didgeridoo player. tugging away on the didgeridoo. Yeah, you can't do that and with I, every kind of yeah. music. Yeah, I could walk around for ten minutes, but being a DJ, you know, the tracks would run out, and I would get feedback from them on the spot. So wow. we we really prayed with the expectation that something would happen right away.
2: So that's what you've been doing recently. Yeah, that type yeah. of combining music with ministry.
0: That's right. Yeah, just practicing and learning how to just be much more direct with the gospel.
2: Well, that's fantastic. Um, so you've really gone on a Growth experience, from yep. Just being instrumental to now being intentional yep. about, yep. And ministering now to yeah, people.
0: Now it's whole of life. It's not mm-hmm. just when we were performing. You know, that's what I've had to learn. Mm-hmm. So I'll be in Bunnings, you know, and people just come up to me and go, "Oh, my wife's dying of cancer." Oh wow! Or you know, the number of people who just come up to me and start talking, and I think it's that spiritual availability. Like I can't really explain it, except that if you prayed up and available. And just moving in relationship with God, people come and tell you their story mm-hmm. because they have a need, you know. And it's just amazing the times in public where I've just laid hands on people. Just ministering to people. Yeah. And they'll tell you these incredible things that they're going through. And I'm like, uh oh, I'm going to have to pray for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. unfortunately,
2: our time has quickly gone by, but Ooh. it's been great to hear your story. It's been a blessing to chat with you, Mike Lane. And so I think it's appropriate that we end with one of your all-time best songs, most famous songs with River Tribe, appropriately called The Blessing. Yep. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today.
0: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, as Eric Scadabo mentioned, this is the song called The Blessing by Mike Lane's musical group, River Tribe. And it was great to hear how they had tremendous success playing at music festivals all over the world, including the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. But that's not all there is to Mike's life. Actually, there's much more to it. We'll find out next time that this interview almost didn't get recorded on the day. It was scheduled because Mike told Eric that he might have to go to Dalesford on that day to pick up a Rolls Royce. What's that all about? Well, we'll find out as Mike Lane comes back to the studio with his friend and fellow didgeridoo player Isaac Harrison, who also just happens to be the founder of his own renewable energy company. Trust me, you'll hear how it all fits together next time. Well, thanks for joining us for the beginning of Mike Lane's story. Until next time, when we'll hear more, I'm Jimmy Colfax encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. And one time I was sitting at
2: my mate's uni party and a girl walks in, her name's Lizzie, and I used to work my first job in Harvey Bay. She was sold out on fire for the Lord and she would always, now got me
1: to get to church and youth, I'm like, nah, not interested, you know, I've got my own plan. And she had a go at me, she's like, why do you wear a cross around your neck if you don't, you know, live it? That stuck with me and all these times I've
2: realized how many times God moved on people and then people listened and obedient and reached out.
1: Isaac Harrison is an indigenous Australian didgeridoo player and founder and director of his own renewable energy company called Boonjil Energy. We'll find out his story and why he's converting a Rolls Royce into an electric car. Next time. The Story. Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life.